Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of the podcast know, or longtime listeners of our radio broadcast know, each and every week, a guest rabbi and myself discuss the weekly Torah portion, that section of the five books of Moses that is read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. This week, we have a double Torah portion. It is called Acharemot Kedoshim, and in traditional synagogues, both portions will be read, beginning in Leviticus 16 through Leviticus 20 and 27. I want to remind the listeners who may not remember why we have double Torah portions. The basic issue is that although we split the Torah into 54 portions, or in Hebrew, parashiot, a regular Jewish year has between 353 and 355 days. That leaves us with 50 or 51 Shabbat tot on which to read the Torah portion. Additionally, when a Jewish holiday coincides with Shabbat, we read the special holiday reading instead of the weekly portion. That leaves us with a maximum of 48, but often fewer weeks in a regular year in which to read the 54 Torah portions. In order to reconcile the cycle of parashiot with the number of Shabbats available, we need to double up some of the parashiot. In a Jewish leap year, we add an extra month consisting of 30 days, which includes four more Shabbatot, or five, depending on the day of the week that the month starts. Thus, in a leap year, we have a lot fewer double portions. The first four of the doubling portions occur only in a regular year. Our parasha, Achare Mot Kedoshim, is one of those parashiot. Let me give you an overview. Following the death of Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons, God warns against unauthorized entry into the holy. Only one person, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, may but once a year on Yom Kippur enter the innermost chamber in the sanctuary to offer the sacred ketoret to God. Another feature of the Day of Atonement is the casting of Lot over two goats to determine which should be offered to God and which should be dispatched to carry off the sins of Israel to the wilderness. Parasha Ahare also warns against bringing korbanot anywhere but in the holy temple and forbids the consumption of blood and details the laws prohibiting incest and other 
aberrant sexual relations as defined by the Torah. Parashah Kedoshim, the second of these conjoint parashiot, begins with the statement, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is followed by dozens of divine commandments through which the Jew sanctifies him or herself and relates to the holiness of God. These include the prohibition against idolatry, the mitzvah of tzedakah, the principle of equality before the law, Shabbat, sexual morality, honesty in business, honor and awe of one's parents, and the sacredness of life. We also find in this parasha the very famous statement, which Rabbi Akiva called the principle of Torah, and which Hillel said, the entire Torah is based on this, Love your fellow as yourself. The Ahavta Larecha Kamocha. With me this morning from San Diego, California, in the United States, is Rabbi Jonathan Stein. Rabbi Stein was ordained as a rabbi in 1975 from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He served as senior rabbi of Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation, senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Israel San Diego, and he served as editor of the Central Conference of American Rabbi Journal and was rabbi, a uh, senior rabbi of Sharei Tefillah of New York City until his retirement. In addition, Rabbi Stein served as president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. It is a great pleasure to welcome Rabbi Stein to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Welcome, Rabbi Stein. Thank you. Wow. A long introduction for a worthy rabbi. Your words are more than kind, and I'm grateful. Um, so, Rabbi Garten, you explain something to me that I have always wanted to understand and never did until today. And that is how we get to the double Torah portions that we do. And I knew there was, anyway, thank you for that. I mean, I've been waiting to hear about that or read about that for decades. So I really <laughs> Appreciate it as well as the rest of your introduction, but that was especially important to me. You and I agreed that we want to talk about how Parasha Achare Mot describes Yom Kippur. And so perhaps you can begin by giving us a brief overview of the ceremony in the Torah that we know of as Yom Kippur. Okay, thank you. Happy to do that. Um, we're going to focus specifically and only on the first chapter of this parasha, Leviticus chapter 16. And the major port, part of that parasha deals with the liturgy, the prayers, the sacrifices, the changes of clothing, 
the number of in, immersions in a mikvah, um, when to burn incense, what to offer on the altar, all of that in great detail. But the overview is it is not the same as the Yom Kippur that you and I think about today. It involves something totally different. It involved the symbolic cleansing of the Mishkan, the place where God's presence lived and where sacrifices were offered. And two things, I think, kind of come together here. First of all, it brings in the deaths of Aaron's sons. And the reason that they died was because a fire from God left off the altar after they brought a sacrifice that was somehow not not, not kosher, not appropriate, not commanded. And they paid the price. Now, Aaron gets a warning. There's danger involved. You've got to follow this exactly as we say, or you can't enter into the holy holies, holy of holies and live. So, in the holy of holies, God lives, dwells in a cloud filled with fire that is on top of the cover, the kaporet of the holy ark. And in order to get in there, you have to turn back, put aside a veil which covers that holy ark every day except Yom Kippur. The ark is the veil is pulled back, or according to some the incense is offered first. In either event, there's a cloud between the high priest and the presence of God, which you still cannot look upon entirely. The high priest continues offering a number of sacrifices, first for his own sins, and second for what in the Hebrew is called the sins of Beto, of his house which we're not really sure whether that means literally his family um, or does that mean his fellow priests. In any event, the third um, offering and the confession of sin is over the entire community of Israel. Now, part of this ceremony is something that many people, including me, have a hard time envisioning and even coming to grips with, if you will, and that is taking blood from the sacrifices and sprinkling it, it says, with his finger a number of times in different places around the altar. Um, this is a scene that is um, uh, hard for me to want to comprehend. And there's another one which is actually of a, a very, very old remnant of a mythological idea in the very, very ancient history of our people, which has to do with the two goats. The two goats were the high priests 
you know, puts his hands into a bag with lottery um, numbers on it. No, it's not lottery. One says Lotto Nye for God, and the other says La Azazel for Azazel. And the high priest picks them out. And the one on his right hand for God, that one, that goat lives. And the other one for Azazel is put aside for a while, but we'll eventually get back to that. Rabbi Stein, I just want to call our listeners' attention that the ceremony related to the goats is found in chapter 16, beginning with verse 7. So I want to read it for our listeners just so they have context. Aaron shall take two he-goats. Let them stand before God at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for God and one marked for Azazel. Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by Lot for the God, which he is to offer as a sin offering. So as you suggest, an immediate sacrifice. While the goat designated by Lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before God, to make expiation with it and send it off to the wilderness for Azazel. And before you continue, perhaps you can try and explain to the community of listeners, what is Azazel? Thank you for that. You've asked kind of the core question that people look at when they consider this particular chapter. Azazel is used nowhere else in the Tanakh, in the Bible. It occurs only this time. There is a bad angel who appears later in rabbinic times in a particular story, and that rebellious angel is called Azazel. This is projected back by many onto the goat. Now, Azazel, there's a number of roots that I found that the word might come from. One of them is the Hebrew word ez, and that means a goat. The other is the Hebrew word oz, and that means power. Whatever translation you choose, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, one of the great teachers of uh, Judaism for the last half century, says that Azazel represents the antithesis of God and the Mishkan, of God and the holiness of the sacrifice. And Azazel, he goes on to say, symbolizes chaos as opposed to the structure and order of the liturgy that's going on with Aaron. So, long story short, summary perhaps, Azazel is a very, very ancient memory in the history of our people. Of course, after the destruction of the Second Temple, such as with no high priest, this could not be continued. Some people considered it an embarrassment and wrote apologetic material, 
But I don't think that's necessary for us as more liberal Jews. I understand it as a very old memory. So thank you for asking. Well, thank you for that clarity of uh, explanation. Um, It sounds as if the Azazel is shrouded in great mystery and only through uh, rabbinic explanation are we able to have a sense of what the Torah uh, may, may, may have meant in this circumstance. Um, do you want to add anything else to our understanding of the biblical uh, explanation of Yom Kippur? Um, well, let's take a look at uh, the middle of the chapter for a second. At the end of verse 14, this is not only one of the moments that's hard for me to imagine because he's, the high priest sprinkles some of the blood with his finger seven times. But what I just want to point out is the number seven. There's a meaning to that which could take several forms. But in two verses later in verse 16, we sort of get to the heart of the matter. You know, so the high priest purges the shrine of the impurity and transgressions of the Israelites, whatever their sins, meaning whether it's a moral or a ritual sin, they leave a little bit of their sin at the altar. It and it accumulates in the Mishkan symbolically over a year. So the Yom Kippur service here is primarily a cleansing of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, from the previous year. So um, one more comment. The thing about the two goats. The rabbis say, that the story of Azazel is what is called in Hebrew a chok, which means it's beyond human comprehension. It's not a logical, rational thing that is teased or reasoned out of something. It's a chok. You do it because in those days it was a mitzvah. It's an un, uh, it's a behavior, if I understand it, that human beings are incapable of comprehending God's rationale for it. That's exactly what makes it a chok. Correct. And in the Torah, it's juxtaposed uh, to what's known as a mishpat, those behaviors that human beings are able to comprehend God's intentionality. Uh, And we would understand, though we may not totally accept it, that the Torah uh, gives us commandments uh, which easily, like thou shalt not murder, we understand its intentionality. But the rules regarding the Azazel and two goats or the cleansing of the 
alter once a year are less clearly understood by us without some sort of rabbinic interpretation. So thank you for that. Um, we want to make a transition. We have some time left. Um, all of this in chapter 16 is not the way in which you led your congregations in Indianapolis and in New York City and San Diego. Um, to the best of my knowledge, you didn't sacrifice any uh, goats or other kinds of animals on Yom Kippur. So how did we move from a pretty messy observance which required a yearly cleaning of the sanctuary to what today becomes the preeminent means by which Jews make uh, expiation for their sins? Excellent question. I hope you have an excellent answer. Well, I think the <laughs> I thank you. I think the answer begins in verse 29 where it says, this is at the end of all of the, lit all of the uh, liturgy with all the blood. It says, this shall be a law to you forever. In the seventh month, the tenth day, which is how we understand it today. To no, that isn't right. That's based on Pesach. Ah, interesting. So in the seventh month on the tenth day, we still do the tenth day, it says self-denial. It's a really interesting phrase. I, I, um, I'm, I think that the first part of it, Te'anu, help me here, Rabbi Garden. Right. I think that related to it is the word oni, poor? Correct. Okay, so you 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 make your soul uh, poor. Correct. Uh, that's a, such an interesting word to right? use. Ta a new et nafshotechem. You yes. will um, make your souls poor, uh, and then it goes on to say, "And you shall do no work." Uh, and ta'asu uh, ha'ezrach. Um, and you shall, what shall we say, uh, practice, it says in English, self-denial, uh, which is usually interpreted as fasting of some sort. Uh, but uh, you're right um, that making your soul poorer is uh, what appears to be the essence of the commandment. You know, that's in, in English is such an interesting usage. Uh, I, I, I assume in Hebrew too. To um, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what word to use to describe it. The modesty, humility. Um, I don't know what the right word is, but it is. In it's not only meant I. Today, I think it's not only meant to be making your soul poor. I think you gotta. Today, we would say you gotta shatter the whole thing. Great. You don't just you don't just take it down toward the bottom. You break it. Great uh, idea. I mean, a really interesting kind of translation. 
so we move from uh, that kind of uh, sacrificial cult to the notion of the soul residing as a place that needs to be cleansed instead of the altar. Wow, that that that's really nice. I like that. It's yours. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, we do carry in the liturgy. Um, not we carry not just echoes of this week's Torah portion. We carry the liturgy, the structure of the service outlined here. We don't we don't do the sacrifices, of course, but we in the Avodah service in the afternoon we use this framework to describe this moment in history, um, and. So it is not lost to us, you know, um, purifying yourself, your own sins, your family or the priest or maybe both, and then the whole community. There is that aspect of Yom Kippur, too. It starts with rabbis, cantors, leaders of the congregation approaching the ark to seek the strength to lead the people. I I can't imagine that the Kohen Gadol wouldn't feel that same thing. And so I think there, there's a resonance here. So for those who aren't totally familiar with this transition, perhaps you can help the listener understand. Uh, we have about uh, 90 seconds Perhaps you can help the listener understand how we got from a sacrificial cultic pattern of ritual behavior to a uh, Yom Kippur centered on prayer. Well, it all centers around the destruction of the Second Temple, um, which stood in Jerusalem. Um, and it was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 of the Common Era. And um, since there is no more temple and no more place to offer sacrifices, and it cannot be done outside of that uh, particular place, that the outlying shrines were banished centuries ago. So without the one place, then there was no way for the priesthood to act in the way that they had. The rabbinic tradition comes along and it takes the idea of a day of self, one of these words used here in the JPS is purgation. It's, for me, it's purging, not Everything. It's not only just cleansing the place, it's about cleansing me um, of, of my sins, and then my family or community, and then all the Jewish people. So we keep the same set of ideas um, in our prayer books. So we keep the essence of the holiday but change the audiovisual aids of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very much. 
Well, I want to thank my guest, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Stein, who now resides in... You have to tell them that I'm your classmate and friend. That too. But I have learned much from you. Harbei Lamadati. I have learned much from you over the years, and so it's a pleasure to have welcomed you to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts this morning. Uh, a podcast of our show will be available on iTunes or on the CHRI website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to wish you a good day and shalom.